Hello. The vantage point from which I read books, particularly non-fiction books, is at a safe distance. After reading for a while, I judge them. Are they interesting, well-written, persuasive? I'm here, and the book is there. Not just at arm's length, but safely placed in a circumscribed zone which extends only from vague disapproval to satisfied consumption. The book I'm discussing on this edition of Bridges to the Future, it's different. The distance kept shifting. Some of the time its focus on menopause, myth and nature fascinated me in the way of something exotic and unusual. At times, I even felt voyeuristic, reading words often very personal, but surely not written for my cold, male, rationalist eyes. And then, suddenly, as if a hand had reached out from the book, it would grab me and shake me. I was like Scrooge when the final ghost forces him to read his own gravestone. I read and reread words that felt laden with significance, written for me. Words I should ignore at my peril. And so, in discussing a book which at first seemed so distant from my own attitudes and interests, I find myself wanting to ask the author more than anything. What should this mean to me? Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I feel honoured to be joined by writer, teacher, psychologist, Sharon Blackie, author of Haggitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life. Hello, Sharon. Are you well? I'm very well, and thank you so much for inviting me. I do tend to get invited onto podcasts that are hosted by women, so this is a really pleasant change to talk about the book with a man. Yes, and a man who, as I say, is kind of so different in his kind of worldview and experience to, to I guess, the people that you write for and coach and spend time with. So, so much to talk about. I often start, Sharon, by asking authors why they have written their book. In this case, there's continuity with your other work, but also a specific focus reflecting key moments in your own life course. Yes, really, I wrote the book because, as with all of my books, I have a passion for narrative and particularly for the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and about how we live, both at the cultural level and at the personal level. So it seems to me that the stories we tell ourselves in this culture about who women are, and particularly who elder women are, are not healthy. And I think that they really need to shift. And I think that there are many inspirations which help us to make that shift. So in a nutshell, all of my work derives from this passion for, for myth and narrative and for checking the stories we're telling ourselves. But I have a particular passion for challenging the stories that are being told and that women are telling about themselves. And in a sense, the book is framed by two events. The first is reaching menopause and the second is battling with cancer. And so that's what I meant in a sense, which is to say this book has continuity with all your work, but it also reflects particular moments in your life. 
Yes, it does. If Women Rose Rooted, which is probably my best-selling book, stopped at the point where I was just a, a year or two into menopause. And, you know, we do have a tendency in this culture to think that that's the end of the story, where actually for me, a whole other story began. And I think that's true for many women. And one of the stories, or one part of the story rather, that I think was particularly important for me was, as you say, that experience of having lymphoma, a very aggressive form of lymphoma, which if it hadn't been diagnosed in the middle of a COVID crisis (laughs) would have killed me. And one of the conversations that we cannot seem to have in this culture is the conversation about death. But the second half of life, you know, is an inexorable journey to death. And so it seemed really important to me to bring that into the narrative. The stories we tell ourselves about our lives and the meaning of our lives are all tied up with death. And I learned clearly such a lot about my own relationship with death, having gone through that particular crisis in the middle of the COVID pandemic. And this is not a conventionally political book. We discuss many books like that on this podcast, but but it does... It does tell a recognisable story of the battle against prejudice and oppression, and in this case, that directed at older women. So there is a kind of political intent to this book as well, isn't there? There is, in the sense that what I am aiming to do with this and with the rest of my work, really, is to get us to consider and challenge those cultural narratives that tell us who we are and how to live. So, you know, the stories that we tell about women the stories that we tell about men and our relationship and our relationship, not just with each other, but with the the natural world. And it seems to me that the stories we tell ourselves, that our culture tells us about how we must live and be, are profoundly problematic. And I guess in a sense, you can call that political. You know, the myth of more, the myth of more is a myth of progress. It tells us that every generation must do better than the last. We must always have more money, bigger houses, better jobs. The myth of the hero or of the heroic that tells us that individuality is what matters rather than community. We tend to think that these stories are kind of built in, but they're not. They're choices. And so if that is political, you know, my desire to help people to see what is going on as a story that can be changed rather than as a given built into the world would be definitely one of my greatest passions. And yes, I guess it's important, isn't it, when often things can feel quite bleak politically to acknowledge progress. And there has been progress, hasn't there, in relation to the discourse about menopause. It was something which we I guess, didn't talk about at all a few years ago. And then it's something which we talk about more and which, for example, good employers now recognize and try to respond to the challenges that women might face during menopause. So there, is, there has been progress. Your, your book is, in a sense, joining a kind of rising awareness, I think, of menopause. But still, I think you want to argue that whilst we might be more sensitive to it, more aware of it, more able to discuss it, there is still this notion that it is an ending rather than a beginning? Yes, menopause and death, as you say, are the the two questions that we don't seem to be able to really enter into very deeply in this culture, and they, they start and end the book. And menopause particularly, yes, we're beginning to see many more conversations about it, but it seems to me that part of the problem is that a lot of the conversations are focused around holding on to, you know, at all possible costs, what is slipping away from you. And that doesn't seem to me to be a particularly effective strategy for, you know, a rich and meaningful second half of life because many women, most women, have decades ahead of them at the point where they go into menopause. So I suppose what I'm trying to do with Haggitude is to find ways of helping women to be inspired 
to visualize that journey, to imagine that journey out of menopause, which can be a terribly difficult period. I put it as a kind of time between stories. The old story's fallen away, the new story is going to begin. But where do you find the inspiration for the new story rather than trying to desperately cling on to the old story, as many of these conversations seem to be about? Now, this was one element of the book which I could immediately relate to in the sense that I have a prejudice and that is a prejudice towards older women. It's not just that I you know, love my wife very much and love being with her and her friends. But also when I was at the RSA, we had battles with the fellowship as we tried to change the fellowship, make it less about status and more about making a difference in the world. And And overall, the people who were hostile to change and wanted to cling on to the idea of fellowship as a status symbol were overwhelmingly men. And those who wanted change and were enthusiastic about being part of that were overwhelmingly women. So I have seen in my own experience, particularly, I guess, amongst older people, that women do seem to be more keener on change, more adaptable to change. Do you think that's a a terrible generalisation or do you recognise it? Well, I do recognise it, actually, yes. And it is very interesting to me that one of the kind of mythic archetypes that I talk about in the book are all of these wonderful old women of old European mythology, you know, the fates in Greece, for example, the Norns in Scandinavia, who are creatively, constantly weaving, creating the world into being, but but with a constant sense of it changing it. You know, they don't just weave a tapestry and then it's ended. They're constantly weaving and reweaving and interweaving. And I think that there is a sense when we look at these traces of our oldest mythology, they do reflect a reality. So yes, I would say absolutely women probably. Perhaps it's because of the great physical transformations that we undergo as well as psychological transformations, you know, with the onset of menstruation, with pregnancy for those who who do that, and then with menopause. Transformation is part of life. And so I think women perhaps embrace it a little bit more easily because we can't avoid it. We're shape-shifting all of the time, all of the way up to the very end. Yeah, and that's something I want to pick up on in a few moments, Sharon. But a, a couple more things about the book. Although you cite admirable older women, you know, from Mary Wesley to Germaine Greer, your focus, as you've said, is much more on the old women of folktale and myth. And it's it's as if you're searching for the essence of what older women have stood for and could stand for. Yes, because I think that's what these old stories do for us. You know, if you look at folk tales, for example, myths can be a bit more complex, but if you look at folk and fairy tales, they're very simple stories in a way. And you wonder why they have such power. But the reason why they have such power is that they carry with them these characters that we all recognize, that we can all see, you know, characters who may wear different clothes from culture to culture, but who we all know. We all know who the hero is. We all know, you know, who the wise old woman in the woods is or the princess. We understand these archetypes. And so it seems to me that stories really do illuminate for us possibilities by their very simplicity. And all of the best folk tales and fairy tales tell us how to get out of or overcome or transform situations that on the surface look absolutely impossible. And so I think stories really do help us reimagine ourselves. And and I have worked with them in many, many different 
capacities. And when I was practicing as a psychologist, it was very clear to me that many psychological techniques do not work simply because people find them boring. Whereas if you can embroil somebody in a story, capture their imagination, and help them to reimagine the situation that they find themselves in, all kinds of things can change. So that's really why I was focusing particularly on those stories. And running through the book is your use of the notion of archetype, the Jungian notion of archetype. Tell us a bit more about the work that this notion of archetype does in Jungian psychology. Well, originally the idea came from Plato, of course, who called them forms or ideas. And Jung picked up on this many centuries later and, and called them archetypes. And the idea is that they relate to the essence of something. So let's take, rather than a character, let's take an idea, because an idea can be an archetype as well. Let's take beauty. So Plato thought that beauty was an archetype. And what that means is Every human being understands the concept of beauty. We know what it is, but what form beauty takes is different from culture to culture and from individual to individual. But beauty itself is an essential aspect of the human psyche, if you like. And so that is really what an archetype is, as Jung envisioned it. It's something that we know the, the form it takes, the particular clothing it wears, if you like, may be different from culture to culture or individual to individual, but we all recognize the essence of these characters or these ideas. And another theme that recurs throughout the book is this notion of the imaginal world, which is a very different idea to the imaginary world. So help us understand this difference between the imaginal and the imaginary. Well, there I guess we're getting into mysticism, if we, if we may. And so in many cultures, cosmologies, again, from the ancient Greeks through to Sufi, philosophy, there is a concept of a world which sits between what you might think of as the world of the intellect and the physical world, which has been called the mundus imaginalis or the imaginal world. And this is actually believed in these cosmologies to be a place which is just as real as the world of the intellect or the, the physical world, but is often dismissed. And this is where the stories live, where the archetypes live, where what cultures have called gods or angels or helpers or guides live. And the suggestion is that a lot of our inspiration for who we are in the world comes from this imaginal world. And that if we can use our imagination to somehow tap into it, that life becomes richer, more meaningful, arguably more healthy. I want to turn to where you focus the end of the book, which is around death. So one of the books that had the greatest impression on me was Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death. And of course, as you know, in that book, you know, Becker argues that Freud underestimated, in a sense, the significance of death and that actually death and our fear of our awareness of death, our fear of death, our repression of those feelings is absolutely critical to who we are and drives a kind of mania in us. And I buy into that. And if you'll excuse me, Sharon, I, for many years, kind of worked with a set of ideas, which argued that, in a sense, when we think about change in the world, there are kind of three active and one passive kind of perspective. So the active ones are the kind of hierarchical view of change, which is a kind of one about kind of strategy and top down and power and authority, the solidaristic view of change, which is about belonging and values, and the individualistic view of change, which is about kind of competition, but also creativity and entrepreneurship. And 
And whenever you're in organizations or looking at policies, these different perspectives on how you achieve change are always kind of at play. But there's a fourth perspective, and that is the fatalistic perspective. And in exploring fatalism, I could have distinguished between two types. So one is a kind of situational fatalism. That is a sense, often accurately, that, that change isn't possible. In the circumstances in which we find ourselves, for various reasons, it's unlikely that we are going to be able to achieve what we want to achieve. But the other is a kind of, and this is what Becker's talking about, a kind of existential fatalism, a kind of sense of, well, it doesn't matter how much we change, you know, in the end, we will be dust. And I, in thinking these thoughts, one of the feelings I came to is that contemporary Western society really doesn't know how to cope with fatalism. We just, it is an inherent part of who we are as human beings. Religion is pretty good at fatalism. It's pretty good at, at offering us ways of dealing with it, but it's so countercultural and how nobody gets a job by saying, I'm appropriately fatalistic. <laughs> Do you think that we need to kind of rehabilitate the idea of, of a kind of philosophical, I don't mean a kind of pessimistic fatalism, but a kind of philosophical fatalism? I suppose, I don't know that I would use fatalism, but that's my own predilection and way of being in the world, I suppose. I have a firm belief, which is that each of us represents a unique way of being human, of what it is to be human in this world. And it's, you know, it's kind of like, if I can use a really silly metaphor, perhaps it's kind of like a flower garden. You know, there are orange flowers, there are pink flowers, there are little flowers, there are big flowers, there are big burning bushes, and all of them together need to be there to make the flower garden beautiful. So in the face of anything, good, bad, indifferent, it seems to me that a healthy way to live, as, as a psychologist, a healthy way to live is to accept what can't be changed and mm. just bloom anyway, you know, to give whatever gift it is that you are in the world, whether that's a, you know, a very big and loud and visible thing or a very quiet, gentle thing. The only response to a challenging world is to bloom anyway. And I think a lot of the old stories tend to to give us that as an option. So if you look back at, again, if we look at old ways of being in the world, this linear narrative that we have now, you know, this heroic narrative, which says there is a beginning and then an end, really is quite a modern invention. And so there's this great symbol, the spiral, of course, in Celtic and many other cultures, which suggests that no, actually, things cycle around, you know, even the cycle of death and rebirth. It's not a circle because you don't end up at the same place, but you kind of accrue stuff as you go round and round and round. And that sense of some kind of continuity so that you die, but then something is reborn of that. It doesn't require a belief in the afterlife or reincarnation, but something changes, something is always transformed to me is a really good antidote to that kind of very negative fatalism that you're talking about. And it seems to me that an acceptance of death as an inevitability, but maybe not as an ending, in, and again, I don't mean in a religious sense, is part of shifting that narrative in ourselves, if that makes sense. Mm. I don't think we disagree. I mean, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to do is is to question the negative connotations of the notion mm. of fatalism in both its senses. So I think, you know, in the political sphere, for example, if politicians could more often say, you know, there's not much we can do about this. Yeah. So let's not pretend that we can, and let's instead talk about how we adapt to the reality rather than 
seeking heroically to change the reality, then I think we would have a lot, well, we would certainly have a lot fewer policies that failed. And similarly, I think that that kind of existential fatalism, that acceptance of mortality can relieve us of the mania that Becker talked about, the desperate kind of running away from it, like someone running in the dark away from their shadow. And so I think we agree, maybe we just have to abandon the word fatalism because it's it, it can never it can never get rid of those connotations. Possibly. I do absolutely agree with you. I think I do think that many of our world's problems are because we cannot accept the reality of an ending or not an ending even, but a major shift in in the way things are. But it really does come down to this question, which each of us has to answer for ourselves. How do we live well in the face of inevitable death? How do we live well, you know, in the face possibly of the death of other things that we care about, like the planet? And for Jung and for depth psychologists such as myself, the second half of life is very much about those questions. So in the first half of life, you know, we're building, growing, um, trying to push ourselves into the world to become something in an outer world. Whereas inevitably, and I think it happens for men as well, perhaps just in a different way, menopause for women kind of crashes you into that space between stories where you have to readjust. But the second half of life is really about looking inwards and saying, okay, you know, not just the, the big and obvious questions like, what is this all for? But literally, how do I live well in the face of inevitable death? How do I live well in the face of decline? It seems to me that we cannot understand life unless we understand and at some level embrace and walk hand in hand with death any more than we can understand light if we haven't got darkness to put it next to. So it's a really important set of conversations that I think the culture needs needs to have for sure. Yeah, that carries us nicely into where I want to take the conversation. In so many ways, Sharon, your your book confronted me. And in part, I'm sure this is because I'm 61. And so becoming an elder and seeing how this has, and perhaps more worryingly, has not changed my view of the world. But it's also because it, it seems to me that you entered this period of your life and entered the crisis of your cancer diagnosis with so many attributes that I lack. And so now, if you'll tolerate it, Sharon, in our conversation, I want to become all three of Dorothy's Wizard of Oz companions in one. I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping that you can, I'm hoping you can guide me down my own yellow brick road. So, so first, Sharon, imagination. I simply don't have it. You know, I'm linear. I'm literal. I'm instrumental. I only ever really attend to my own monotonous internal voice and and simple undeveloped motivation so so Sharon, how do i grow an imagination before it's too late <laughs> Well, you know, a lot of my work or most of my work, all of my work is based on what I call the mythic imagination and it can be developed. I'll give you a very simplistic idea. So I love crows. Okay. I've always lived near crows. Everybody knows what a crow is. I know what the crow is as a physical creature. I understand its ecology, its habitat, what it likes to eat, its behavior. But when I look at crow, I also see shape-shifting women in Irish mythology who just, you know, transfer between woman and crow very, very easily. Or I see crow as trickster, as trickster is in many, many cultures around the world. And it's kind of like an add-on layer, which is added on to the physical level, which is really, really important. You know, we mustn't ever substitute, but it just gives, it adds depth. So, 
what I try to do in the classes that I teach is is to help people look at objects in the world around them, engage with them, talk to them. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But actually, you can have a really good conversation with a crow and just see that if by shifting that perspective and looking at it as more than just, you know, some physical object that happens to brighten our lives from time to time, we can we can slip into this kind of imaginal world, into this world of story and maybe perceive a relationship rather than a kind of objectification of what is beyond us in the world. So, you know, I could go on, we don't have time for me to go on, but that kind of approach is one way that I would suggest. We have a tree in our one of our fields, which is more whole than tree. It's just full of holes. It's a rowan tree that's been battered by the elements. And when I first met it, I thought it was dead. And then in spring, it just flourished all of a sudden, green shoots everywhere out of this old gnarly tree. That kept me going during my lymphoma because it just seemed like the perfect metaphor for how I wanted to approach that very, very difficult time. So that's kind of the work that I do, if I don't know whether that helps or not, but that would be my contribution to your problem. Uh, uh, And is it, Sharon, would you say discovering your imagination, getting in touch with your imagination, is it more a process of reaching out or of letting go? Oh, that's an interesting question. I'd say both. But I think I think you have to to let go of certainties for sure. And, you know, our old cultures, even in this part of the world, native British, Celtic, Irish, whatever you want to call them, cultures, actually embraced uncertainty. Uncertainty was where all the good stuff lived, you know. So I think you have to try to be comfortable with uncertainty and, yes, to, to let all of your fine certainties about the world go. But it is a question also of reaching out to what we have been taught to see as inanimate objects or as animate objects but not quite human and therefore not worthy of engaging with. And to actually treat the entire world as if it was alive and as interesting as we are. And that really adds a richness to life and to our place in the world that we don't often find anywhere else. You know, you're never alone with a crow. <laughs> okay, so some ideas there about how I might advance age, create some possibility of imagination. Let's turn to courage. I'm a coward, and being a coward is so much harder when you become old. You know, when you're young, you can deal with cowardice by by thinking, well, you'll be so strong and so fast that you can escape danger. But as you get old, you become more vulnerable and being a coward uh, then makes it much worse. And I also know, your book reminded me of this, I've thought about it a lot, that unless I'm lucky enough to die in an instant, if I know that I'm approaching death, as you felt the possibility that you might be approaching death when you had cancer. I know that in my current state, I will approach that in a state of denial or terror. And I read in the book, and I was kind of so full of admiration for the way in which a critical moment in your life had been that you had a fear of flying. And the way you dealt with your fear of flying was to learn how to fly and to learn how to fly in a way which involved a certain amount of of risk every time you went up in, in the air. So Do I need to learn to fly? Have I got to do something as heroic as that to find some courage? Oh, gosh, it wasn't heroic. You know, I had had lived in a state of kind of anxiety 
Low-level anxiety, I would guess, most of my life after a fairly challenging childhood, you know, in a very working-class, impoverished environment with an alcoholic mother and a violent father. And all I ever wanted in the world was safety and security. And I just got to a stage in my life where I recognised that that wasn't actually very interesting, that, you know, I could not display any gift that I might have to bring to the world if I were going to be safe and secure. But I didn't know how to change that in myself. And it, it just occurred to me one day, actually, when JFK Jr. died in a plane crash, that was really weird thing to do, I suppose, to, to to see that and then go and learn to fly. But that's what I did because I felt that if I didn't really, again, we, we circle back to the same issue. If I didn't look death in the eye, I wouldn't ever be able to fully live. And it completely transformed my life. That I don't think that was courage. I think it was desperation. But it does help you develop a certain resilience, you know. And so when I was faced with a lymphoma diagnosis, I am oriented to story. It's just, okay, this is the next stage of my story. And how am I going to be the character in that story, if I can put it that way? You know, am I going to quiver? Am I going to hide? Or am I going to say, okay, what can this experience teach me? Whatever the ending, and at that stage in your life, well, certainly for me, I'd kind of let go of attachment to outcome. It was more about the process. What can I learn from this experience? And I learned so much from that experience that is going to be valuable, you know, in the remaining, hopefully, many years of my life. Yeah, I guess I'm still kind of obsessed with this question of, is it necessary to do what you did? I mean, you, you, you talk in the book about, which is an amazing thing that you responded to your lymphoma with, in part with a sense of joy, of obviously not the sickness and the tiredness and all those characteristics of being of, of, of chemotherapy, but actually in a sense that the sense that this was another learning opportunity for you and indeed the things that you had to do while you were being treated to, to stop everything, to completely look after yourself, focus on yourself, think, know what was going to make you feel better. That This is remarkable, but it, it, it feels to me as though the reason you were able to do that goes back to that decision you made to climb into a plane and try to fly as a way of overcoming your fear. And and I guess I still want to come back to this idea for myself, and I'm sorry to be so self-obsessed in this conversation, but what is my equivalent as a coward? What is the thing that I could do that would, would help me from living in a state of fear? Because like you, I, I, I suffer from low-level anxiety as well, but I kind of guess I've resigned myself to it. Gosh, there's a lot to unpack in that, isn't there? I know I'm not paying you for these sessions. No, 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 it's fascinating. No, it's wonderful questions and, and such a lovely a lovely conversation to have. I, I guess it's, for me, it was understanding the root of that fear, you know, which was quite a long process. So I can't, the short answer is I can't give you a short answer, but it's understanding where that comes from, what, what aspects of your life lead to that fear. And for me, as I said, you know, it was understanding that all of the things that I had gone through as a child and a teenager made me clutch desperately to, to safety and security. And anything that might undermine that, I found very frightening. So then I had to kind of like look and say, okay, you know, what am I going to do about that? And I had a fairly radical solution, but it worked for me. So I think for anyone in that situation, it's understanding the source of your fear. What do you think is going to happen? But most of all, I think it's an orientation to seeing life as a constant set of transformations without which you're dead. If you don't grow, you're dead already. You know, you're static. Nothing is nothing is real and alive in there. And so I really did see it 
you know, not as something I would have chosen, but as another possibility for transformation that would help me break out of some patterns that I really needed to break out of. So that's why I call it a gift. It's just, it was the perfect excuse for just stopping. So I, I, all I can say is, you know, find your own equivalent. It's questioning, interrogating what is the source of that fear or what you call cowardice. What do you fear is going to happen? How can you shift that story so that instead of fearing something is going to happen, you can look at what might happen as what my Californian friends call another bleep opportunity for growth. Well, then let's go to the third element of this, which may uncover slightly more, which is control. So getting older for me has simply meant that I've kind of doubled down on my control freakery. I I joylessly exercise ever harder to try to stay younger. I, I work even more intensely to prove I'm important or probably more vitally to make sure that I continue to be seen as being important. And as I become more and more tired with this kind of futile exercise of control i think one day about stopping but but you know what sharon i have simply no idea what i would do without my ambition and my status yeah and that is fascinating and i think again it it comes down to these cultural narratives who tell us that that is what we must be that we must strive always to be more it's a combination of the myth of more and the the myth of the heroic that i was talking about and Part of the challenge for most people in that, I would say, is to step back from the narrative. It's kind of difficult to do, but to step back from the narrative, look at all of the ways in which it is not healthy, and then try to imagine what a better narrative would be. You know, I call it the post-heroic. The heroic has killed us. You know, it's got us into the mess, every aspect of the mess we're in now. What does it mean to be post-heroic, to kind of shrug off that heroic way of looking at the world that says it's all about you and it's all about your ambition and it's all about status or whatever it may be for individuals? And just look and say, okay, you know, what is the nature of my gift? And and so to look at it more or as much as service rather than serving oneself what am i you know what am i giving to the world what am i putting out there in the world that matters and it does seem to me and i have seen this time and time again from older people who've really if i can put it this way done elderhood well is that lack of attachment to outcome because they've they've done everything they could just by being who they are and giving their gift in the world and i found when I had lymphoma, that if I was going to die, it's not that I would be very pleased with myself for what I've done. It's not that I don't desperately want to do more, write more books, do more good stuff. But it's just like, okay, I have at least been the essence of who I think I am and what I think probably is the gift that I give to the world, if I can say that without sounding self-serving. So it's a really complicated question that you're asking that doesn't have a simple answer But all of the answers, it seems to me, begin with this really strong questioning of the cultural narrative and how you fit into it. Because our personal stories are told and who we think we are and who we think we should be are always happening in the context of the cultural story that tells us who we must be. Really, it's so much time, both for men and women, to shake that up. I I don't know very many men who are happy because of, you know, this heroic label that the culture has kind of placed on them. All of which makes me feel that somehow I have to address these three issues, the the letting go of control, the discovery of courage, the reaching into imagination, that, that they're connected, that each 
the progress in each can help progress in the others. And, and, and for at least getting me to think about that, Sharon, I'm incredibly grateful. So thank you for writing Hagitude, a book that had an immense impact on me. And, and thank you for joining me on Bridges to the Future. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a really lovely conversation. As you've heard, Sharon's book has marched into my psyche and I find myself moved and I deeply hope in some way perhaps changed. But you know what? Had I known what this book was, I probably wouldn't have chosen it for this podcast. So if there's a more general lesson to add to the insights I hope you've taken from my conversation with Sharon, it's this. Every once in a while, let's say every book in five or ten, Choose something you would never normally buy and that no one who knows you would think of buying you. A book may be the safest way we know to leap into the unknown. So next time you're in a bookshop, take a leap. You never know where you'll land. Goodbye. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.